Be seated. If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. If you don't have one, please take one from a seat in front of you and open it up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. <laughs> Need a copy of God's Word. If you don't own one, please take that one home with you after the service so that you can be reading it, studying it, going through it and allowing it to go through you. Matthew chapter 12, we'll continue our study today in verse 30, where we left off last week, but as a little bit of a refresher, kind of to bring us up to the point where we are in our text today. Remember, as we've gone through the chapter 12 of Matthew, Jesus, in the last few verses, and specifically what we covered last week, has been confronted by the Pharisees again. And we see that Jesus that initially started in this little discussion or debate and them pointing out the fact that he was doing all of these miraculous things that Nicodemus said, only God, the only somebody who comes from God could be doing these things. However, the other Pharisees pointing out that you must be coming from Satan because you're doing these things on the Sabbath and you're casting out demons in the name of the prince of demons, Satan, while the crowds were contemplating, man, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one? And Jesus confronts the Pharisees, and that in our discussion last week we talked of that. Jesus pointed out how, how ludicrous their statement was, that, that a kingdom divided against himself. If Satan was actually working against himself, how much sense would that make? And, and that brings us to this point where we are today as we begin where we left off last week in verse 30. Jesus said, who, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters pointing out the very clear fact that there is no neutral ground in this relationship with Jesus. Jesus is saying very clearly, you are either fully in it with me or you are completely out. Can't straddle the fence in this relationship. There's no neutral ground and there are eternal consequences based on what decision you make as to what you are going to do with Jesus. Now Jesus goes on to say, and it's important as part of the background, like I was saying with this, because in verse 31 he begins by saying, therefore, tying directly what he's going to say now to what he has been saying. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now when we look at verses 31 and 32, most of the attention immediately goes to what is often referred to as the unforgivable sin or the unpardonable sin. But before we look at that, I think it's very important that we see something that many people miss when we go through this. Look at what Jesus says at the beginning of verse 31. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Jesus is clearly saying here that there is no sin that you could commit, save one that we're going to talk about in a moment, but no sin that you can commit that can't come under the blood of Jesus and have it be completely removed from your record. That should be great news to everyone who is in the room today, especially if you are here and you believe that because of the sin in your life to this point that God couldn't possibly forgive you. Many people have fallen under that deception. 
to believe that their life to this point is so sinful that God wants nothing to do with you. And Jesus is here saying that couldn't be further from the truth. He suffered and died in your place. He shed his blood to forgive you of every sin that you've ever committed. Regardless of if you're now saying in your, in your mind, yeah, pastor, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what's been a part of my life to this point. You don't know what I did last night. You're right, I don't. But Jesus does, and he said, you can be forgiven today. You can know that your sin is forgiven. Past, present, future sin. He said any sin, that is all sin, can be wiped away simply by surrendering your life to Jesus, trusting in his completed work on the cross. Now, he does say that there is one sin, one sin that is not forgiven. He speaks of that as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, blasphemy is a term that is used for something that would come in mockery of or in direct opposition to someone or a statement. It's, it's normally of the spoken word, but we're going to talk in a moment where words come from. But Jesus is, is saying here that, that, that this word is a blasphemy. It is a coming against the Holy Spirit. We need to take a look for a moment then to understand what, what Jesus would be referring to here by understanding what the ministry or the work of the Holy Spirit is. The Bible is not silent on this. As a matter of fact, Jesus spoke in great detail of the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He said in John 15, 26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. One of the, the works of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to testify about Jesus. To testify, to give testimony about who Jesus is, what he has done, and what it means for every, every man, woman, and child. He gives testimony in our hearts. Jesus goes on to clarify how this testimony takes place when he's speaking of the world and how the Holy Spirit convicts every heart in John chapter 16. Jesus said, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the father and you no longer see me and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged Jesus lines out here again how not only does he testify of Jesus but he convicts the world he convicts everyone in their hearts of three specific things he says of sin righteousness and judgment. First of all, sin. The Holy Spirit places in every heart this conviction that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible is clear that God, holy, almighty God, created us and we are to be sinless and follow after him, yet every heart has rebelled against God. Every heart has sinned against God and the Holy Spirit reveals that truth to every person. Revealing also, that, as it says here, that convicting of sin, 
because they do not believe in me. Jesus even draws it closer into that, that when that testimony comes, that Jesus is who he says he is. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Rejecting that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit as that truth is revealed to every heart. Convicting of sin, convicting of righteousness. Jesus speaking here of self-righteousness. The Holy Spirit convicts every heart, revealing the truth that all of our self-righteousness, all of the things that we try to do in our own heart, fall woefully short of what is required to pay the debt for our sin. That, that it, it, Revealing the truth to us, that as the Bible says, that all of the things that we can muster in our own flesh and in our own strength, trying to appease God, holy, almighty God sees that as nothing but filthy rags. Now, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will do this after he leaves because Jesus is doing this now. He is, if you'll remember back when we were studying through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you've heard it said that you shall not commit murder, but I tell you that if you think you're okay just with that and your own self-righteous behavior, you need to understand that it's a heart behind it. If you are angry or have hatred towards a brother, you've already committed murder. Jesus is doing that work now and as, we are, as he is alive in his ministry here. We see that even just back to a few verses, back when we were looking at verse 11. He says, but I, that the, the man is there among you who is, if his sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, won't reach in and pull the sheep out. Remember, they were talking about their holy ways of following the Sabbath rules, and he pointed out their hypocrisy in their heart, their self-righteousness. He will go on later on to, compare, to draw the point that they, they strain a gnat yet swallow a camel, missing the entire point and focusing on their self-righteousness. The Holy Spirit convicts every heart that self-righteousness is an affront to God. And then also, convicting of judgment, the false judgment of the world. Again, the perverted selfish justice in the world that caters to our flesh. Isaiah said, woe to you who call evil good and good evil. The Holy Spirit convicts us of what is good and evil. And yet now Jesus saying that that this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to reject that. There are two responses to the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of every man. First of all is to reject it, to, to push it away, to argue with the Holy Spirit as the conviction comes upon the heart. And that leads ultimately to condemnation. It is a willful unbelief. It is not based on a lack of evidence. It's based on a lack of humility. Just like these these Pharisees that Jesus is speaking to. It's not because they didn't have all of these things shown before them. Jesus is drawing the point that they've seen it all, and yet they are resisting the work of God in their hearts. Even giving credit to what is being done to Satan. This willful unbelief turning into persistent rebellion and ultimately final denial, and that is the sin Jesus is speaking of here. That once and for all absolute hardening of someone's heart towards the Holy Spirit's work in convicting them of sin and pointing to Jesus. That is the only sin that will not be forgiven, that ultimate final denial of that work in the heart. Now, praise the Lord, there's another response available to everyone, and that is repentance. 
as the Holy Spirit brings conviction to the heart. Repentance is, a, is an agreement with God that, that we are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God, that everything that we try to do in and of ourselves falls short of what God, God desires in us and what God requires of us, and a surrendering to the work of Jesus on the cross, his finished work. Through repentance, we are in agreement, and that leads to salvation. Praise the Lord. Now, it's not our job as Christians to determine who has and who has not committed the unforgivable sin. That's not our job. We're not to go around looking for those and, and, and trying to identify who they are. We should assume that everyone we come in contact with has not committed that unforgivable sin. Also, if you are here today and you are worried if you ever have committed the unforgivable sin, that's a great sign. Because if you're worried about it, that means you haven't. <laughs> Your heart still is soft enough to receive the truth, and it's simply a matter of surrendering to that truth today. Now before we move on, I think it's important that we also understand that the work of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, does not stop when someone receives Jesus as Lord and Savior. That is part of the work, but the work continues in the lives of believers, and we need to understand how the Holy Spirit works in and through us. And Granted, that's a whole teaching in and of itself. could spend several hours on that, but we'll compact it to a couple of minutes. Jesus tells us that he is a comforter to us. He is a helper. The, the Greek word parakletos is the one that talks, speaking of one that comes alongside us in our walk. Jesus said, John 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Notice Jesus refers to him as he, him. Holy, the Holy Spirit is not it. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will send you another helper. Another, that word is very important. It means of the same kind. Jesus speaking, another helper as me, God. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune Godhead, three in one. It says that he will be with you. He will be in you. Jesus said in Acts 1.8 that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Those, that threefold work of the Spirit within the life of a believer, with us, in us, and upon us, the baptism of the Holy Spirit empowering us for the work that He has uniquely called us to do. He's our comforter. He's our helper. He's our teacher. Jesus said in John 14, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peter tells us in 1 Peter that there is this work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives as believers, the sanctification, the work that, that draws us more and more into, into this walk, that we would walk more like Jesus, that we would become more and more like him. Now, while it is true, the Bible is clear that once we are born-again believers, we are safe from ever having to worry about committing the unforgivable sin. We cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit as Jesus speaks of here as believers. However, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit by not walking in a manner worthy. 
of this great calling that we have. Paul speaks of that in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, beginning in verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by walking in a way that we used to walk. We have been delivered from that. We're not, to, we're not to speak evil of one another or gossip or slander, but we are to speak words of edification, loving one another. Paul also speaks to the church in Thessalonica and 1 Thessalonians the fact that we can quench the work of the Holy Spirit by not allowing Him to, to move in our midst. Well, that... Again, a brief look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes on, verse 33, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus uses the illustration here of a tree. And he says that you will know the tree by its fruit. Now, I, when my, we first moved into Surprise, we had some trees in our backyard. And I am not a tree expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I did know that they were fruit trees. Just didn't know which kind of fruit they were. And my wife and I were having a discussion and talking about that. And one of the kinds of trees that we hoped that we had was le a lemon tree in our backyard. Well, one day, I came in to the house and I said, guess what, honey, that tree, that one right over there is a lemon tree. And she said, well, how do you know? I said, because there's lemons on it. <laughs> now, the point I want to make with that is the fact that the tree determines the fruit. What do I mean by that? Well, I knew it was a lemon tree because the, the tree produced lemons on it. I didn't go to the store and buy lemons and went, go out there and put them on the tree, hang them like Christmas ornaments, and say, hey, it's a lemon tree. The fruit doesn't make the tree a lemon tree. The lemon tree produces lemons. The point I want to make with that is this understanding, guys, that man is not a sinner because he sins. Man sins because he's a sinner. And we are not made righteous by our works. We work the works of righteousness because we have been changed on the inside. We don't please God because of some action that we do in our flesh. We have to allow God to do the change in us and then through that change, the fruit is then produced. See, they had this all, 
all backwards. They had this total misunderstanding of what was going on here. And Jesus points out their hypocrisy when he's speaking to them. He's saying, you see this good work, you see this good fruit, and you're trying to credit it to an evil tree. That can't happen. Then he calls them a brood of vipers. Sons of snakes, basically, is what he's saying. Wasn't really too worried about their feelings at this particular time. He needed to make this point to them that they are totally missing it. And he goes on to clearly define what it is again that he is speaking. He said that, that he's, he's talking about their words, what they're saying. James says in chapter 3 that this, the tongue that's in every one of our mouths is capable of, of horrendous things. But it's not the tongue that's the problem. Jesus pointed that out. It's not the tongue. It's what's behind the tongue that's the problem. The heart. If any of you had a younger sibling growing up that used to go and you'd be doing something and then all of a sudden, Mom, Dad, you're never going to guess what? Tattletale, right? The tongue is the tattletale of the heart. Revealing what is truly going on in heart. That's what Jesus said. He also said that we will give an accounting for every careless word on the day of judgment. Every careless word. Praise God for the blood of Jesus. Because <laughs> that's taken care of too. If you're here today and you're saying, I never killed anybody, I'll take my chances. You'll stand before Jesus one day and give an accounting for every word that's ever come out of your mouth. Because those words reveal what's in your heart. But praise God, notice too again, he doesn't just leave it there. Verse 37, for by your words you will be justified. Yes, your words will condemn you if it reveals a heart, a hard heart that has been hardened towards the Lord and the work of the Holy Spirit as we've already discussed. But by our words we too can be justified. That word justified, I've shared this before, I heard this a long time ago, and it's just a great way to remember what justified means. It means just as if I'd never sinned. It's not, because, it's not that just as if I'd, the, the sin never happened. No, the sin is there and it had to be accounted for, but Jesus took care of it. He paid for it all. He took it upon his own record, his own account, and gave us his clean record, his righteousness. It's just as if I'd never sinned. How do we take advantage of that? Paul tells us, Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. It's that surrendering of your heart to the work of the Holy Spirit. Not resisting it, but surrendering to it. And then from the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks, proclaiming Jesus is Lord. Believing that he suffered and died and rose three days later to pay the penalty for your sin, you are justified. He took it all. Praise God. Verse 38, in response to what Jesus said, some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. (laughs) If it weren't so sad, it would be comical. Their response, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Granted, we talked about this last week, but they're only, what, 10 minutes removed from Jesus' last sign when he cast out a demon, healed a blind man, and the blind man that couldn't speak spoke. (laughs) That's what started this whole discussion. And they're like, well, I tell you what, Jesus, show us a sign. Again, revealing the hardness of their heart. And Jesus' response, the only sign that will be given to, to you is the sign of Jonah the prophet. First point, Jesus believed in Jonah. Jesus isn't pointing to some fairy tale. As we spoke last week, Jonah is a real man, a real story, not a fairy tale, not an illustration. And Jesus points to this very real man and this very real story. And he said, just as Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster or this great fish, you know the story. If not, Jonah, the book of Jonah tells it to us. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, wicked, evil city, totally corrupt, and saying that in 40 days God will bring judgment on Nineveh. Jonah, being just like us, got in a ship and went the other direction. Didn't want anything to do with that, that, that assignment. That sounds too dangerous. I'm going the other way. God sends a storm, stirring up the boat, tossing the boat. Everybody on the boat thinks they're going to die. Jonah said, it's because of me throw me overboard, so they did. Storm calms, big fish comes up, swallows Jonah. Lives inside the fish for three days. Fish swims right up next to Nineveh, throws up Jonah on the beach. Jonah goes in and proclaims what God told him to go and proclaim. And it tells us that the entire city of Nineveh repented. And Jesus draws attention to this story and a comparison there. The comparison being that that Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of this great fish. Jesus said, the Son of Man will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, pointing to his death, burial, and resurrection three days later. And he said that Jonah and Nineveh will stand in judgment against this current generation because Jonah went into Nineveh and proclaimed a simple message that in 40 days God will judge Nineveh. Now, if we picture this, we picture the prophet as he is going in, and we probably think of him as this, you know, pretty sharp-dressed, you know, prophet walking in. He was in the belly of a fish for three days. He wasn't tan anymore. It's probably really pasty. The only thing that kept him from being fully digested was the grace of God, kept him alive inside this fish. Probably all of his hair been digested, all of that other kind of stuff. I mean, just imagine the sight. Imagine the smell. How do you smell after three days of fishing, much less being inside a fish for three days? And he is walking through Nineveh proclaiming a message that says God's judgment is coming. And they repented. And Jesus is saying, I come with a message of grace. I come with a message of mercy. 
And this generation rejects it. Jesus said something far greater than Jonah is here. Then he draws the attention to the queen of the south who came from the ends of the earth, Jesus said, to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Jesus said something far greater than Solomon is here. The one who created Solomon, the one who gave Solomon all of his wisdom is standing right here and you're rejecting him. The queen of the south will stand up in judgment against you again. The hardness of the hearts unwilling to see the clear evidence that is laid out before them as to who Jesus is. We are all responsible for what has been revealed to us, the light that has been given to us. Jesus said in verse 43, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other demons, seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. And they go in, and they live there, and the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Jesus isn't giving us a how-to manual on how to cast out spirits here. He's giving an illustration Again, keeping in context of what he is, who he is speaking to and the point that he is making to these Pharisees and those that are like him. And we need to understand too, as we've talked in the weeks past, that we need to allow the Lord Jesus in his way to speak to the Pharisee and every one of us. Because what Jesus is speaking against here is this legalistic religiosity that these Pharisees have built up. This idea that if they can somehow, somehow do some house cleaning, they can somehow polish up the outside, they can ignore the fact that there's problems on the inside that have to be dealt with. If they can put on a good front, if they can do certain things exterior. Remember, these are the ones who who would tithe exactly. They'd count out the, the, the pieces of mint to make sure they're tithing, the 10%. Doing all of these external things, yet totally missing the heart. The problem with self-righteousness and legalism is it drives us further away from God. We think even at times we can get caught up in this thing and, and even it sounds like, okay, well, if I get up in the morning and I read my Bible and I say my prayers and I da, 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 and go through this checklist that God's going to bless me because I'm doing all of these things. And again, realizing that's not what God is after. He's looking at the heart. Jesus goes on to speak to these Pharisees. Later on in another discussion, he compares them to whitewashed tombs that look great on the outside, look polished on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones. Ian Thomas wrote this, speaking of self-righteousness, and again, I, I say this because we have, to, we have to identify that even if it's a small Pharisee, the Pharisee in every one of us at times. He says, this self-righteousness it's what paralyzes the activity of the church of Jesus Christ on earth today. In defiance of God's word, God's mind, God's will, and God's judgment, men and women everywhere are prepared to dedicate to God what God condemns, the energy of the flesh. 
There is nothing quite so nauseating or pathetic as the flesh trying to be holy. Paul said, in my flesh dwells no good thing. Again, it's like going to the store and buying lemons and putting it on the tree and saying it's a lemon tree. What we don't need is empty religion obsessed with outer reformation. What we need is an intimate relationship that produces internal transformation. That's what Jesus is speaking of here. Now I love that. As he, as he draws this attention here, he doesn't leave it there. In stark contrast, look what Jesus says next. This is truly amazing as we draw this together here. Verse 46, he says, While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven... He is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus speaking here in this, to this crowd, this large crowd of people, all of a sudden one of them spoke up and said, hey Jesus, your mom and your, your brothers are over here and they want to talk to you. The Bible tells us, we're going to see in chapter 13 actually, in Matthew, that, that, that his brother's names are recorded for us. James, Joseph, Judas, known as Jude, and Simon tells us that he had sisters, plural, at least two sisters. Imagine that family dynamic. Growing up with God as your big brother. Just, just imagine that. And, and, just, and when we think about this, how cool would that be? I mean, as difficult as it would be if your brother was perfect, but how cool would that be to grow up in that family? And, and the, the fact that, you know, that, that there was just this select few that were allowed to witness that. But Jesus draws his attention away from this earthly family to something far more important, the heavenly family, and he says, you know what? You can be a part of that. Anyone can be a part of the heavenly family with the heavenly Father. He says, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister. Jesus clarifies this even more as to what that means in John chapter 6. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered them and said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Believe in Jesus. Believe that he is who he says he is. Place your faith and your trust in him. When John wrote his gospel in, in verse 1, it speaks of Jesus coming and that the world rejected him. But it says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. How awesome is that? that we can be a part of that family. And simply, it's not, a, it's not a matter of somehow something that we can earn, that we can buy into. We simply receive him for who he is. And he gives us the right to become the children of God. Wow. Through his saving, redeeming work 
on the cross. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, and this is where I want to tie this together in our whole study this morning, but in our text that we've read through, the Trinity is clearly laid out for us. The three-in-one triune God. Remember, back at the beginning, we were talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Then we talked of the fact that Jesus said the sign of Jonah and his death, burial, and resurrection. And then here the work of the Father. We see the, the Trinity working together. The Trinity and their roles in our salvation. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter was one who witnessed all of this that we've talked of today. He was there during this discussion and many others. He was one of those that, that, were, that was closest to Jesus in his earthly ministry. And Peter writes for us, 1 Peter chapter 1, in his introduction, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Peter here shows that all members of the Trinity work together to bring about our salvation. First of all, notice it says that we are chosen by the Father. Chosen by the Father. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us when that choice took place. Before the foundation of the world. That word chosen means to personally and intimately select. So that means that before God said, let there be light, he chose you to be a part of his family. He selected personally, intimately, you to be a part of his family. Now, whenever we start talking about this choice and election, the discussion automatically has to go very quickly to the fact that there are two, two opposing views that come into play. One, our Calvinist friends, they believe that, that God is absolutely sovereign and man has nothing to do with salvation. God predetermined those who are going to heaven and those who are going to hell, and that's the way it is, and that's the way it works out. On the other hand, the Arminists, they believe that man's free will trumps God's sovereignty, and it's, it's up to us. Those who, select, those who choose God go to heaven, those who reject God go to hell, and God's sovereignty has nothing to do with that. We believe that both happen. <laughs> that God is absolutely and totally sovereign, but man has a free will and a choice. Do those two go together? In God's economy, they do perfectly. Do I completely understand it? Absolutely not. <laughs> I don't. But you know what? God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, he says that his ways are way higher than ours. 
As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, as far as the heavens are above the earth, that's how far my ways are from your ways. I got to tell you, I like it that way. (laughs) I like a God who is way bigger than me, who understands way more than I do. And he doesn't apologize for it, nor should we. Jesus said, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me sovereignty. And the one who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Those who choose to come, they can come. Choice, sovereignty, chosen before the foundation of the world. According to his foreknowledge, that Greek word prognosis, pro meaning before, gnosis meaning knowledge. Literally, it means to know in advance or beforehand. Now, again, point of clarification, that does not mean that God looked through the annals of eternity, looked all the way from eternity past to eternity future, and he, he saw that all of us were going to pick him, so he said, all right, I choose them. That's not how it works. <laughs> it's not like we all of a sudden can, we, we get this insight into who's going to win the Super Bowl in 2016, so we pick that team. That's, that's not, that, that would put us again as sovereign over our salvation. That we chose God and he was smart enough to pick us. That's not what that means. Here's what it does mean. It means that he chose to set his love on you in a very personal and intimate way. Eternity past, God chose you. To focus his love on. He pre thought it out. He made up his mind in eternity past to love you. You personally, me personally. Bask in that thought for a minute. Guys, we need to do this regularly to remember this. That is is our God. That before he created anything, he focused all of his energy on loving you, loving me. Chosen by the Father. Sanctified by the Spirit. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit Now taking this love of the Father and then drawing this, placing this work in our hearts as we spoke of earlier. This opportunity given to everyone who has ever lived and ever will live. The Holy Spirit does that work of convicting in every heart, showing us the truth, convicting us of our sins, revealing our inability to save ourselves and bringing us to this knowledge of who Jesus is, revealing Jesus to us. The sanctification process, as Hebrews 10 points out to us, it starts in a moment in time when we surrender our lives. We are saved in that moment. But then sanctification is that process where we become more and more like Jesus until we stand in his presence one day, perfect, glorified. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, redeemed by the Son. As it says here, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. 
redeemed by the Son. Redemption speaks of being purchased back. We were all slaves to sin. Jesus, with his blood, purchased us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. According to the riches of his grace, unmerited, unearned favor. That is what he poured out upon us, grace, as he shed his blood to forgive our sins. Jesus, when he hung on the cross, God himself stepped out of heaven, lived a perfect, sinless life, takes that life to the cross as he is hanging there, shedding all of his blood for us. He said, it is finished, done, paid for in full. At that moment, he took away all of your sin, every sin, past, present, future, paid for. It had to be. If we were left to to answer for even one of our sins, it would keep us out of heaven. It would send us to hell forever. Jesus had to do that. It tells us in Hebrews 10, verse 12, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because the work was finished. One sacrifice, all sin, all the time, but you have to receive it. If you're here today and you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, you've never trusted in that work, you are still dead in your trespasses and sin. You, st- you still stand guilty and condemned before a holy God. You need to repent today and receive that free gift. It's already paid for. You need to recognize that you are a sinner. You need to repent of that sin and receive that free gift. It's there for you. Peter goes on quickly. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Grace and peace in the fullest measure come because of this focused love that the, that the, tri, the triune God focused on each one of us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Grace, peace, mercy, hope, this inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, reserved in heaven. Guys, we have absolute assurance of what is ours. Not because we have been given it, we have to hold on, but because it says it's protected by the power of God. Praise the Lord. Grace and peace in its fullest measure. I wanted to finish on this today because again as I bask in this truth it is such a blessing that God almighty God creator of heaven and earth the one as it tells us that in his hand all things are held together has focused his love on you and on me We celebrate communion as we prepare our hearts for that. Dwell in that truth today. And again, if you're here today and you've never given your life to the Lord Jesus, don't fight it anymore. Don't harden your heart anymore. 
Surrender. Give it up. You will not regret it. You too can have eternal life. Pray with me, please.